Okay, so we're going to be in Deuteronomy. Uh, the goal is to get from chapter 18 to chapter 22. So, I mean, I'm trying to hit about five chapters per night, and we'll see how we do. I think we'll do all right. So now, if you have, are just joining us here in Deuteronomy, um, we have covered a lot of this already, um, some of it in Exodus and Leviticus, portions of, November, uh, of Numbers. <coughs> so this is something that... Um, I'm not going to dive deep into, so you can do a little bit of homework on your own. If there's an area that is like, man, I wish you would have talked more about that, I probably did um, in another reference to it. So you might want to check out the studies in Leviticus where those same kind of themes are repeated. So the, the name of this book means the second law. So the law is being given a second time to the nation of Israel. It's 40 years later since the first giving significant is they're about to enter into the promised land. At the first giving of the law, the children of Israel did not enter the land because they rebelled and not believed that God was capable of giving them victory over the giants in the land. And so for each day that they had previously spied out the land, they wandered a year in the land till everybody that was 20 years old and above um, passed away. That took 40 years. And 40 years, that entire generation, 20 and above, they passed away. So now this is the next generation, and Moses is like, I need to make certain that you hear the word of the Lord as you get ready to come in. So it's a, it's, it's, we may look at this and think, wow, it's, it's a repeat, but it is perfectly timed for them. So we're going to see um, some instruction again from uh, God on how they should conduct themselves in the land. So we'll see some things, not an entire list, because there, it's a lot of subjects tonight. Um, he's going to speak to them about not engaging in the religious practices of the other nations around them. He's going to give a prophecy of Jesus, actually, here. We'll cover in Deuteronomy. Um, he's going to give more instruction about judicial matters, so important for them to have this instruction about how to deal with difficult court cases. They, they had never done this before. So he's going to give them more information about that. He's going to talk about laws of warfare. He's going to talk about the importance of being separate. And it's going to come in an interesting way. Rather than it just being like in Corinthians, come out from among them and be separate, he's going to have them be, uh, be separated with a bunch of reminders um, that they are not to mix with the nation around them. And then um, there's going to be a lot of instruction about laws regarding sexual violations. So we'll get those towards the end of our study. So chapter 18, we begin um, with, you know, they had talked about punishing the false prophet, but they were to look for the true prophet. And that's going to be um, where a lot of our attention will land in this chapter. But again, I don't know, fourth, fifth time we're reading this in verses 1 through 8, uh, that the Levites, they were the priests of the nation, um, and that they have no part nor inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the offering of the Lord made by fire in his portion. Therefore, they shall have no inheritance among their brethren. The Lord is their inheritance. So this is an often repeated theme. He wanted them to be available for ministry um, to the nation and he did not want them to get caught up in maintaining their lands. They were going to be provided for in a different manner, manner than, than the rest of the tribes. The rest of the tribes are going to be responsible to provide for them. So this idea of uh, taking care of them. So this is something you know, very, very clear. Um, I don't know. Again, five, six, seven times it's, it's been reiterated here in the law. In verses 9 through 14... Well, I want to read those. It says, When you come into the land which the Lord, or Yahweh, is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire, or anyone who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you will dispossess, listen to soothsayers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord 
your God has not appointed such for you. So the first reference there of walking through the fire, um, this probably is a reference to them sending their, their young children um, to um, sacrificial death to whatever God they were worshiping. Later on, we know that they worshiped Molech in this manner. So this is probably some earlier form of worshiping some other God, the child sacrifice. And he says, don't do that. Now, the sad thing is, they will do that. As a matter of fact, one of the kings, King Manasseh, is going to do this with his own son. Um, the, a, uh, an altar is going to be set up in the latter years, in the kingdom years, um, in the temple to worship that very God that received sacrifices of children. He says, you should not do this. And so this is something that was an abomination, clearly um, unhealthy, not a good thing at all. So um, this is what he's warning them against. He says that they should not be seeking guidance from spirits, from the spiritual realm, and he names many different ways in which this happens. <laughs> Communing with the dead, um, you know, uh, uh, looking at omens and trying to figure out and discern the will and the mind of God, um, or, or the gods in their case. Um, this was something he said, you don't do that. That's not appointed for you to go and to learn and to be instructed and to gain knowledge um, about those things that may seem mysterious to you. That's not what you're going to do. Uh, the word of God is our guide. The word of God is what we go to. It's what we read. It's what we study. It, it tells us how to Come and be in a right relationship with God. It tells us how to repent. It tells us how to be in a right relationship with each other. It tells us how to interact and, and to be in a relationship with this world. We use the word of God as our guide and as our practice, as God's uh, authoritative word for how we should live. We have a book that we consult that is the God-breathed, mind of the Lord. We have a revelation from heaven, and so we look to that. It's not only the Word of God, but we also have the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, who leads us and guides us in those individual decisions. Now, the truth and principles are laid down in the Word of God. So we're not trying to discover new truths and principles, but many times following the application of those, it could be, is it this direction or is it that direction? For example, when Paul was out doing ministry and spreading the gospel like the commandment is, is to go to all the nations, they wanted to go uh, into Bithynia, but the Lord led them over into Philippi. The Holy Spirit forbade them, is what we read in the book of Acts. So we have the word of God that tells us to go, but as we go, there may be some specific instructions um, in, in the, the obedience of that, the, the Holy Spirit will give to us. And so we have the Holy Spirit. He will give us um, a, uh, you know, a confirmation in our heart, in our mind, maybe through circumstances we can discern those. He also may put a sense of warning in our heart that that is not what I want you to do. So this is how we are led. We're led by the Word of God. We're led by the Spirit of God. Now, we can gain practical knowledge by studying God's created, uh, or God's creation. And so you can look at the laws. I mean, God is a God of order, and because he's a God of order, not a God of chaos, we can actually study the world that he made, and we can find that there are patterns, and there are systems, and there is there's order. And so it becomes something that can be studied. Um, this is one of the arguments for creation. Because if it was from chaos, how do you study chaos and develop methods? So we believe that there's a God of order who created, and we can look at the creation around us, and as we do this, we can learn how he established things, how things interact with each other, and so we can derive a practical knowledge as well. So God has created this uh, world. He has given us um, his Holy Spirit and the Word. But when it comes to matters of salvation and matters of life and um, obedience, we are looking to the Word of God. We don't communicate with the dead. 
And he said, well, yeah, but my loved one, I just feel, I feel so much comfort speaking with my loved one. That is something you need to stop. That you're not communicating with your loved one. It is something other than that. And um, I realize that may be hard for some of you to hear. I don't mean to be uh, insensitive, but I also want to be very clear. The Bible forbids that. And when you're communicating, you're communicating with imaginations or thoughts of your mind on the best level. And at the worst level, you're communing with a, a deceiving spirit. And so you must be careful. And, um, you know, number one, just because the word of God says it. But, you know, this is what happens often when people begin to get off into consulting mediums and um, tarot cards and the Ouija boards. The enemy is happy to give enough that it will be true that it hooks you. And so when Rebecca and myself were uh, ministering in Australia, there's uh, all of a sudden seances and, um, and, uh, and such got real popular in the schools in Australia. And they, they began to do this. So they, they're, they're having all these seances, these young kids. I don't I, if it was young. I think it was like maybe late middle school, early high school kind of in age. And there were things that were, were coming out in the seance that ended up coming true. And they, everybody was like, wow, this is amazing. And then the spirit said, you're going to die. You should take your life. And kids started going and taking their life. And so um, it's not to say that there is not a real dark realm out there that will appear as an angel of light to lure and to even give a false sense of comfort. The Antichrist is going to fill this world with signs and wonders when he shows up. Don't be surprised. So we don't, we don't seek the dead. We don't seek um, any of the occultic tools to gain knowledge about my life or about my future or about my past. I come to the Lord and I allow him to speak to me. I don't look, I'm not, I don't care what sign I am. I am under the sign of the cross. That's, I follow Jesus and I follow him. And I want to know what the, the creator has to say, not what fallen demons. And that's what that whole realm is. And it can be dressed up and it can look sharp and it can even lay down a little bit of truth and it may even give you a little bit of exciting um, you know, wonder. But it is a dark thing that God forbids. And really, um, do we need any explanation of why we shouldn't do this if God says don't do this? And the answer is we don't need an explanation. I don't need the Lord to tell me why. He's creator. He sent his son to die on the cross for me. Because there are plenty of things I don't understand and that are a challenge in life. And if I have to have a why for every one of them, then what happens when the Lord says, I'm not going to share with you why? Well, can he do that? Yeah, he's creator. He's God Almighty. And if he wants you to grow in your faith and have more trust in him by not giving you every answer, then he has the prerogative to do that. And I have found that as life goes on, um, I understand the who a lot better. I know who my God is. But the why, there's more and more whys I don't have answered. But the who, that list, it just is getting more and more beautiful. And so this is so important. Um, now listen, the Bible doesn't name every practice that we should avoid. Um, so we're going to have to be cautious. We're going to have to be wise. What is the Lord doing here? What is the Lord doing here? He is saying, don't be engaged in the religious practices of the nations around you. There's the principle. The principle is this. Don't do the things that other religions do. Now listen, there's, they, they will often copy the original and the true, and we have the word of God to guide us in what we should do. But when other things are uh, religious practices begin to be picked up by the church and because it's not explicitly forbidden, um, but, and yet it's not told we should do it either. And we say, well, this is something that's out there. Um, I would say, don't be like the religious nations around you. Don't be like the religions around you. So I, I, I don't 
quite understand this, but I, I'm, so I'm trying to be patient. But listen, are we doing everything the Bible tells us to do as a church right now? Are you doing everything that you should be doing as a believer right now? The answer is no. So why don't we worry about just getting 100% on what we know we're supposed to do and avoid the things we know we shouldn't do and all the things we don't know about, we leave alone. There is safety in that. And, and so often these things are just like one step away from hooking and pulling in. I Listen, I'm not going to say in every instance, but... If, uh, if, you know, this is happening, you know, in Buddhism or Hinduism or this is happening in this religion or that religion, it's something that, you know, um, is not forbidden in Scripture. Listen, you have nothing to do with the unfruitful works of darkness. Where do false religions come from? From culture? From wise men in their culture that have just kind of gotten off track as they've gone? That's not where they come from. False religions are doctrines of demons. So again, we shouldn't be surprised if there are practices that have a, a certain amount of um, value that would be enough to entice people to stay or to go. So if it's not written in the word of God, and it is um, a practice that is associated with another religion. And I said written in the word of God. So other religions pray. We pray. We're told how to pray. So there will there'll be things that are, you know, common like that. But when it comes to things that are just not written in the scriptures and are done by the other religions, and we look at that and say, well, you know, the Bible doesn't forbid. That is like, that's like skating on really thin ice. Why would you do that? You know, why would we want have to have any part of it? Well, it's mostly good. So how much sewage could I put in your glass of water before you would choose not to drink it? If I poured a bottle of, of you know, water, I opened it and I poured it in there, and I had an eyedropper full of sewage, and I just put a few drops in there, you're not going to drink it if you're a thinking person. Like, ah, uh, no, thank you. Well, come on. I mean, it's like 99.9% sewage-free. <laughs> we, we know this. I mean, you know, you, have you ever gone somewhere and you've watched the waiter or waitress's finger go in your drink or something, you know, it goes on your feel I'm not eating that. I'm not eating that. I'm not going to do that, you know. And so I'm not a germaphobe, but I don't want your finger in my food either. So I'm not going to do that. If we know about that when it comes to eating then how about their spiritual intake? Because at worst case scenario, I can go get an antibiotic and get over whatever you know, thing I picked up. But when you start messing around with the, the, the dark realm, which is false religions and whatever they do, it makes no sense. The Lord wanted his people to have nothing to do with the religious practices of the nations around them. I believe this is a principle that carries over into the New Testament clearly. All right, it's repeated about idolatry and the false gods. We don't want anything to do. What if they, if other religious practices or religions are doing this and it's their practice, and yet it's not in the Word of God, and there's not a pure way for us to approach it? Have nothing to do with it. That that's just safe and it's wise, and I believe it follows this principle that we're talking about here. Well, look at verses 15 through 22. So we're we're talking about a lot of false prophets, soothsayers, and. Um, you know, those who call up the dead. But there in verse 15, we're going to find out about the true prophet. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. That verse 15, that is a prophecy of Jesus. So if you don't have a little note already in your Bible, you might want to circle that verse and say a prophecy of Jesus. It says, according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them 
to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, the prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has spoken? When a prophet speaks in his name, of the, in, in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken, the prophet has spoken it presumptuously, you shall not be afraid of him. So if somebody's going to say they're a prophet of the Lord, then they need to be right. And um, you have these schools of prophets where they go and they learn how to be right. You know, they start out, well, you know, they have this ranking, you know, you're like a 50% prophet, you know. Oh, you mean like flipping a coin kind of a prophet? You know, so half of what you say is there. Then, then you get up to like 75 and then you get up to like nine. And then you become this prophet that really knows. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that it... Uh, that if a prophet is going to speak in the name of the Lord, they need to be true in what they are saying. And of course, the word of God is what we measure. Um, I do believe that we can have information given to us about future events, even today. I believe we, have, we need nothing more for revelation, for salvation, and how to live and how a church should function. But I also believe that God does give you know, information about the future. Um, and I, I'm not going to take the time to go into it, but I think there are plenty of examples. I've had them in my own life where people have prophesied and then that thing has come to pass. So, you know, we're looking, um, we're open to that. The Bible says don't despise prophecy, okay? But if a prophet speaks, they are to be tested. They're to be tested. And uh, at one of our retreats one year, um, somebody got up and said that, you know, God was going to judge and we we're all going to go through extreme persecution and some people were going to die and the time of persecution for the church had come. He said, I mean, stood up, said it out loud. I mean, just like that. And I was the one leading the service and I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, well, that could be true. The Lord could give a prophecy like that. The Lord could tell us. The hard times are coming. Read the book of Acts. You'll find out that can happen. But we're also told to test everything that's spoken. And some people will get mad when you test what they have to say. So I'm leading this thing, and I'm like, okay, here we go. I'm like, all right, listen. Um, so you just made a prophecy. Is that accurate? Yeah, I, yes, I made a prophecy. All right. It's entirely possible that what you said is true. I will have to say, though, it does not bear witness in my spirit that what you just said is about to take place. But that doesn't mean you're wrong. So what we're going to do is we're going to mark this. And this time next year when we come back, we will know whether or not the word that you spoke was true in front of the Lord or whether it was a false prophecy. He got very, very mad. I think he actually left the retreat. But, you know, I don't feel bad about that. I, I didn't lose any sleep over that. I would, have left, I would have lost sleep over not saying anything. And so there's nothing wrong. If that's a true prophecy, then, I mean, that guy's going to be, you know, he's going to be noted. I mean, I was giving him the opportunity to be noted for being true or wrong. Now, you know, so I didn't fear him. Um, I really didn't think it was. I mean, I mean, now I can tell you that was a false prophecy as there's been down through the ages. There's been, listen, we've had a lot of doomsday prophecies that have come against Rebecca and myself. And one prophecy that came in that said my wife was going to die because I had forsaken the church, the bride of Christ. Therefore, God was going to forsake my bride. And um, the, the way in which I had forsaken the bride of Christ is because I was going on mission trips. And so I'm like, God, do you not think the bride is over there too? I mean, you know, he only has one bride. I mean, I'm ministering to the bride of Christ. I mean, it, what, and so I said, so God's going to punish my wife for my sin. That's right. I said, can I repent? No, you cannot repent. I'm like, okay, I know this is not of the Lord. And um, so this went back and forth. And eventually the, the individual came into a meeting with me and their head was completely shaved. And I said, why is your head shaved? So, well, I, I don't want to talk about that. I said, well, I know why your head is shaved. You have done this as a sign to me that um, this is going to come to pass, and so you shaved your head. 
And I said, here is the answer. I said, you shaved your head for no reason. My wife is going to be fine, and I'm going to be fine. And that's been about 15 years, and we are. So people will come, and they will give these prophecies. But, you know, you, you, the Spirit will, will help you to know. you got to test it. Just because somebody says it doesn't mean it's true. So we're not to despise it, but we have to test it all. And so, um, and when somebody is like, well, you know, I'm, I'm mostly right. <laughs> I'm th- mostly right is not good. Read your Bible. So we do have a prophet, though, that's 100% right. And his name is Jesus, and we are to hear him. Write down as a reference Acts chapter 3, verses, it says 22. Actually, make, write, pick up at verse 20. Acts 3, 20 through 26, because... Um, Uh, They're quoting about this prophet, and it clearly names Jesus as this prophet. I'll read verse 22. It says, For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And if you go and you look at the context, it's talking about Jesus. God announced in the Gospels to the disciples that they should hear the Son. Matthew 17, verse 5. While he was still uh, speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Some very familiar language. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, like Moses, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So he's spoken, and the exhortation is that we should hear him. So we must obey this prophet who is the Son of God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Luke 6.46 says, and Jesus is the one speaking, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? I am the prophet whom God said would, would be raised up. I am the one whom God said, you must hear him, you must obey him, and what he said. And so hopefully the resolve of your heart is, whatever the word of God teaches, whatever the, the Jesus has to say, that is what I do. If you have this mindset that you read something in the word of God and it says, thou shall not or you must, and your response is, well, let me pray about it, there's nothing to pray over. It, that does not require prayer. You, we might need to pray for you to be obedient, but the prayer to know what you're going to do with that is completely out of place. All that's required of me in those moments is to be obedient right now. Well, not not like in a week and not in a month. What does the word of God say? Yeah, but you know, things are really confusing. Of course it is because you're in sin. Of course it is because the hand of correction is upon your life. So try being obedient to what God has said without question, humbling yourself and just bowing before his word and say, All things that you say, Lord, I will do. I'm not going to evaluate your word. I'm not going to measure your word. I will be obedient to your word because you are my master and I am a servant. So we are told all the way back in Deuteronomy that Jesus is coming and that whatever he has to say, we must do completely. Is there anything left undone in your life that you're aware of right now? in being obedient to the Lord, whether it be something you should stop doing or whether it's something you should start doing. My encouragement to you is to hear him and be obedient to him in all things. Yeah, but no, there's no yeah, but. Yeah, but I just need to, no, you need to be obedient. That's well, he just needs to confirm it. No, he doesn't. He gave you the word of God and the spirit of God is within you. And if the Spirit of God is within you, then you will know what the Word of God has said is true. Now, if you struggle with that, then maybe the, word of, the Spirit of God is not in you. Because he will testify <laughs> that this is true. So, um, walk in obedience.
chapter 19 um, deals with some judicial matters. Um, we've talked about the cities of refuge. These are those locations where they could run and hide if there was an accidental, uh, or if there, you know, you accidentally killed somebody, uh, you were out working and you didn't hook up the, the oxen team well and, you know, it came loose and it ended up ro- running over your neighbor in front of you. It was accidental. There was no um, intent for harm. You could run to one of these cities to avoid the wrath of the family. But if you got there and it was found out that you really did do that on purpose, then you would have to face the crime with which you are charged. Verse 14 of chapter 19, a simple little verse. You shall not remove your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set in your, in your inheritance, which you will inherit in the land that the Lord, that Yahweh your God is giving you to possess. So God was going to give them a land. They were set up the boundaries and said, this is the inheritance that God has given to me. And nobody had a right to, to uh, commit thievery against somebody saying, well, I really need that creek. Well, I really need that, you know, that, that you know, bend that goes up into the, to that valley there. I need that. I've got to have that. It's mine now. I have better use for it. You had no right. To, to take it from your neighbor was to steal what God had first and gave to somebody. And so this spoke of a lack of trust in God. This spoke of a lack of wisdom. This spoke as a, um, a rebellion against the Lord to move those landmarks. So it's like, it's always been here, this landmark. Well, I moved it. You move that landmark for generations, but it's mine now. And the Lord said, that, that should not happen. And so I think the application, the principle is we don't take people's stuff. We don't steal their stuff. And it doesn't, there is no place for that. Um, it's the same consequence. When you take from somebody else today because you think you deserve it or you've, you know, you've earned it and you take it from them, you are making a statement about sovereign God who supplies. You don't do it right. I have better ideas of how it should be done. And of course, it's always going to benefit yourself or somebody you love, which is benefiting yourself. And so there's this warning. But I think a a spiritual application of this is beware of those who want to move the ancient landmarks of God's word. These have been put down for for us. This is the thing that just boggles my mind. If we just deal with the New Testament, for nearly 2,000 years, we've had the New Testament. If you go to the Old Testament, we've had it for, you know, so we've had this for thousands of years. Generations after generation of, of these truths from the word of God. And somebody can wake up and have an idea that it's wrong. And then everybody wants to follow them. It boggles my mind. It's like, are you kidding me? I mean, like, does history and tradition and the word of God mean absolutely nothing to you? And this is a reality. If somebody is willing to move a landmark of God's word in one point, it is only a matter of time before they will move it in another point. And I'm not talking about good Christians having, you know, honest um, disagreements about an interpretation of a difficult passage. I'm talking about the foundation, those fundamental truths of, of salvation and practice and doctrine. And so people want to change that. Well, they only changed one thing. They have moved the ancient landmark that God put in place. They, he, she, they're a false prophet. I, I, you know, I said this to Rebecca the other day. I said, I think we need to resurrect this word. You know, this, this description of people. They are a false prophet. They deny Jesus Christ and they deny the word and they have another way in which we should live our life. That is a false prophet. And they are on your TV and they are on your radio. They, are, they abound. I'm not even talking about false teaching, okay? There's some teaching that's just like, that is really bad. Okay, I mean, and it's out there. I mean, you hear something, you're like, you have got to be kidding me. That is not what that means. That is, that is bad teaching. Okay, that's one thing. Then there are those that are false prophets. They turn you away from Jesus. They turn you away from matters of salvation. They deny the word of God. And so I think we should be quicker to refer to people is a false prophet. So there's this one. Don't let those things be changed. And beware. People, pastors, 
And teachers are want, they're moving the ancient landmarks every day. They're cowards. They're afraid. They got their finger to the wind, listening to what culture and politics and maybe even you know, individuals in their church have to say, and they go along with that. And that is truly a false prophet. So beware of those. And then um, in verses 15 through 21, it talks about those who uh, want to go and bear, uh, bear witness against somebody for a crime that they've committed. So um, you've heard this many times in the Old Testament, New Testament, every word must be established by the mouth of two or three witnesses. So one person could not establish a truth. You had to have somebody else that would corroborate what you're saying or another person for a court to act and to bring a guilty verdict. If it was just one person, it was not enough. But what happens when a person brings a false accusation? If they are found out to have, this is verses 15 through 21, to bring a false accusation against a person, whatever the punishment was going to be for the person that they charged with that crime, they would now be guilty of that punishment. I think that would clear up a lot of corruption in our court system. What do you think? It's like, you want that? Then this is, but you know, they just, they go scot-free. And it's like, it's, it's just, it's infuriating, I know, to us all. But, but this is what the Word of God says. Like, you bring a false witness, then you better be prepared to bear the consequences for what you have done. Um, so... The Lord doesn't want the land corrupted, and he understood that that would definitely. So here's some, some matters of, um, uh, you know, uh, law, um, manslaughter, um, property rights, and then a false witness. So again, this would have guided them as they were hearing the court cases and the, the different uh, troubles that came. Chapter 20. Um, deals with laws of warfare. Let's read a couple of these verses. Uh, verse 1, When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, don't do what is the most natural thing for you to do at that moment. <laughs> don't be afraid. Why? For the Lord your God is with you who brought you up from the land of Egypt. You've got a story to tell. You have a deliverance that should just bolster your faith to know. When you go out to do the work of the Lord and you begin to be fearful, don't be afraid because God has given you a story to tell. He has rescued you from your sin. He has rescued. He has saved you. Don't be afraid. God is on your side. So let's walk. Or I should say we, when we're on God's side, we don't need to fear. So the, he says, don't be afraid. Verse 2, so it shall be when you are on the verge of battle that the priest shall approach and speak to the people and he shall say to them, hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid. Do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the your, Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. I think the one person who stands out in my mind who exemplifies this truth more than anyone else is young David going out to fight Goliath. It's like, I'm not afraid of you, you uncircumcised Philistine. You defy God, and he goes, and I mean, he, he takes him out, you know, and um, the whole, he defeats him. This little guy takes out this 10-foot warrior, with a slingshot. Just, you know, it was a, it was a missile-guided slingshot for sure. And there probably that thing came out of that slingshot faster than any rock had ever come out of a slingshot before. And dropped him. But this is, that's an example of this, this uh, prophecy that's being given for them as they go into battle. Now, as you go through, the, through this, it talks about reasons for exemption from, for fighting. They've never been in army before. So who can, who can sit it out? Verses 5 through 9, interestingly enough, if you're afraid, go home. Reminds you of Gideon's battle, right? Um, also, 
If you've not had a chance to enjoy your new home, you haven't dedicated it yet, or you have new land and you've never had a harvest from it, or you have a new marriage and you've not enjoyed the first year of your marriage, you could go home. These are reasons for exemption. When in verses 10 through 15, um, you could come and you could offer terms of peace and tribute. So we're not going to take you out, but this is what you have to, to do. Um, it says, when you go near a city to fight against it, verse 10, then proclaim an offer to it, offer peace to it, and it shall be that if they accept your offer of peace and you open and open to you, then all the people who are found in it shall be placed under tribute to you and serve you. Now, if the city will not make peace with you, but war against you, then you shall besiege it. And the Lord your God, when the Lord your God delivers it into your hands, you shall strike every male in it with the edge of the sword. But the women, the little ones, the livestock, and all that is in the city, all its spoil, you shall plunder for yourself. And you shall eat the enemy's plunder, which the Lord your God gives you. Now here, verse 15 is key with this. It doesn't matter, apply too much to us. But if you were in their day, verse 15 was key. Thus you shall do to all the cities which are very what? very far from you. That's a, that's a key word because that, that's not for the nations in Canaan. These were for the, the battles that would happen that are outside. But verse 16, but of the cities of the peoples which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, that's the land of Canaan, you're to completely destroy them and so that was, it was total destruction for those that were in the land of Canaan. For those others that were near them, um, it offers a peace. And if, if they agreed, then they had to pay tribute. Um, and then practical instruction, verses 19 and 20, don't cut down the fruit trees. That just doesn't make sense. You can eat the fruit later. Chapter 21 uh, is, this, this is a tough chapter. Um, these next two chapters have some tough things in here for us. It begins in um, verse, and it's going to talk about punishment for rebellious sons, and there's other things in here as well. But verses 1 through 9, um, it talks about atonement for an unsolved murder. So let's begin reading at verse 1. If anyone is found slain, lying in the field in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess, and it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall go out and measure the distance from the slain man to the surrounding cities. And it shall be that the elders of the city nearest to the slain man will take a heifer which has not been worked and which has not pulled with a yoke. The elders of the city shall bring the heifer down to the valley with flowing water, which is neither plowed nor sown. And they shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. And the priests of the sons of Levi shall come near um, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. By their word, every controversy and every assault shall be settled. And it shall be that the elders of the city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. And they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, nor have our eyes seen it. Provide atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel. So even if there was, it was not known who was responsible for a murder, there still had to be atonement that was going to be made. The Lord values life. That's what's being communicated here. It doesn't matter if you have the guilty party. There's guilt and something needs to be done about this. And so um, he's giving them instructions about this. In verses 10 through 14, there are laws governing um, captive women. So if they go out to war and they take a captive, um, it couldn't be the Canaanites, um, then he gives them instructions. And um, he, they could take her as a wife. Now, um, as you read through this, what you find is that she was given a month to mourn, um, having been taken. She was to cut her hair. She was to take, you know, rid herself of those clothes. She was to be in a time of mourning, and at the end of that morning, then they could come together as, as husband and wife. All of that kind of <laughs> assumes a willingness on her part to play along with that protocol. 
So if she doesn't, then they're not going to be married. And what it goes on to say is if this relationship does not work, if it, it, it's not you know, happening, verse 14, it shall be, if you have no delight in her, then you shall set her free, but you shall certainly, or you shall certainly not sell her for money. You shall not treat her brutally because you have humbled her. So we read this and it's difficult, but there were protections for her. And um, so that's, that's that. Um, gov- laws that were governing them as they went through different types of um, different circumstances arose. So an unsolved murder, a captive woman. Um, verses 15 through 7. If you have engaged in polygamy, you have two wives, and a wife number two is your favorite wife, um, and you have a son by her, but wife number one, chronologically speaking, um, also has a son, you can't give a double portion to the second son. You've got to give it to the first son. And so this was a way just to you know, prevent there from being favoritism shown and you know, creating all kinds of chaos. Um, I don't think we should at all assume that because there was um, instruction given to a polygamous relationship that God was for polygamy. It's much like when I'm over in Nepal and I get asked this question every single time I go by the pastors. There's a man in our church and he has four wives. Um, And should he um, uh, only keep the first wife and then send the other three away? What should he do? So however, you know, how I answer that question is, no, he's got four, he's got to keep them, and he's got to take care of them. He's got to care for them. He can't just turn them out. In that culture, if he turns them out, they will not survive. He must take care of them. Um, can he be a pastor? No, he cannot be a pastor. So in giving instruction in that situation, that is not me saying hip, hip, hooray for polygamy. Okay, that is dealing with a difficult situation and trying to come up with the best answer under um, circumstances that should have never been entered into. And that's kind of what you have here. So don't read into the idea of the polygamy that this is the right thing to do. It just, it happened, and this is how it was to be dealt with. Um, So yeah, the, the, the firstborn son is going to get the double portion. Again, remember, we studied this in Hebrews not so long ago, Hebrews 12, 23, that we are the firstborn. And um, we will get the double portion, right? We're going to receive all that God has intended for us. There's not a first-class and a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. We are all firstborn, and we will all get the first, the, the double portion of blessing that God has intended for us in Christ Jesus. Um, you got a rebellious son, he's a drunkard, he's a glutton, he's lazy, and he will not repent, he will not turn. You could, one way to deal with them was to have him stoned in verses 18 through 21, but mom and dad had to be the first ones to, to pick up the stone. Verses 22 through 23, interesting verses here. Let's read these. If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree... His body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. Jesus hung on a tree and he did not hang overnight on that tree. And so they even petitioned him, let us break the legs of the of the uh, people hanging on the, that are being crucified. But when they came to Jesus, he had already, had already died. His legs were not broken. Um, but he hung on a tree. But Galatians says, cursed is the one who hang, hangs on a tree. Jesus hung on the tree. And he endured the curse of God, the wrath of God. For his sin? No. For your sin and my sin. For the world's sin. I would encourage you to read again Isaiah 53. You might want to write that down as a reference there. It says, for he who is hanged is accursed of God. Write write down Isaiah 53 and go and read that. And how the chastisement for our peace was laid upon him. How God poured out his wrath on him. How it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Why would the Lord find any pleasure in bruising his son? Because he was judging sin. Verses 24 
He did not find pleasure that his son was bearing that, but he found pleasure in punishing the sin that needed to be judged. It was his plan so that we didn't have to be punished. And so Jesus took that curse um, of the broken law, the punishment, and he took that for us. So interesting how you find these glimpses and these pictures of Jesus as you make your way through uh, the Old Testament. So last chapter uh, that we'll cover tonight, chapter 22. Um, Here are laws regarding being separate and and also laws regarding sexual violations. So we we covered the sexual violations quite uh, at length in in Leviticus. So we're going to go quickly over that. But let's read at verse 1 of chapter 22. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and hide yourself from them. You shall certainly bring them back to your brother. And if your brother is not near you or if you don't know him, then you shall bring it to your own house and it shall remain with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. You shall do the same with his donkey, and you shall do with his garment, with any lost thing of your brother's which he has lost, and you have found you shall do likewise. You must not hide yourself, all right? You got you to, you know, be able to be found. So don't hide the donkey. It's like, well, nobody ever came, you know, or he's coming in. I've got to run, and you, you, you leave the house. Don't do that. What is this? This is a law of love your neighbor, right? And what does it mean to love? Love means this. Love is choosing the highest good for another despite the impact upon my life. And a good way to do, you know, decide whether that's a good definition is run it through the life of Jesus because he's a perfect example of love. And indeed, he chose the highest good for us without regard to the cost to himself dying on the cross. So we are to, um, this is a principle that carries over into the New Testament, clearly, right? Um, the law of the captive you know, woman taken to warfare, not so much. But, but this one here, this principle, um, is, a, is a clear commandment. Turn with me over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to begin reading at verse 1, and we'll read it down to probably about verse 9. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, and the answer is, there absolutely is, then fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. So we're we're to have this love. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Oh, look at that garment. I'll take that. That's mine. I'll hide it. I won't let anybody know I found it. I'll hide the donkey. Oh, they look like they're looking for something. It's time for me to go. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out, not only for his own donkey, but also for your neighbor's donkey, right? You see, I mean, what's the best thing for them? Verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And the word even is kind of like, can you believe it? Even that terrible death. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Every, 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 uh, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this is how we are to walk. We are to walk in love. And in a very practical way, as it relates to people's stuff. Not just to their emotions, and we should care about that. Not just to their spiritual well-being, and we should care about that. But we should also care about their stuff. We should look out for them and not just for ourselves. This is what Jesus has done for us. Jesus came and he was looking out for us. 
The call here is to be like-minded, like Jesus. And this is truly, you know, when you've encountered somebody who's looking out for your interests, you know how blessed, you know how um, loved you feel when that takes place. And this is how God wanted Israel to walk, and this is how the church of Jesus Christ is to walk as well. Look at verse 5. A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all who do do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. So God does not want the mixing of gender norms. All right, He doesn't want this to take place. He's not into somebody being a transvestite. He doesn't want them to dress up like that. And that, boy, how applicable all of this is in the day and age in which we're living, where there seems to be such confusion over gender. And it, it's, it's, it's deception. It's, in many ways, it's blind deception. Um, not willing to just look. But this is something that God, even on that level, God is like, don't dress up like a woman and don't dress up like a man. Let me put this quote up. There for you. This is by Stephen Andrews and Robert Bergen, and they're um, it's an Old Testament uh, Holman Old Testament commentary on Deuteronomy, and we read: Israelites were to respect God's design and not call their assigned sexuality into question by wearing inappropriate clothing. Moses knew that behavior provokes values, just as values promote behavior. The Lord detests such behavior because it places a fog around distinctions. We're living in a fog. That he constructed. God is against anything that blurs the lines between the sexes. I think that's a great quote. I agree with 100% of what they um, have to say. Why is there this attack against gender norms? Because of what it says in the opening verses of Genesis. Is that God created male in his image and he created female in his image. And so Satan attacks that which God has created. That which God has put in place. That which God has constructed. Satan wants to deconstruct. Satan wants to tear down that which is meant to be a blessing. Satan wants to make it a curse. And sad to say, he's having some pretty good luck right now. And we just need to stand fast. And this coming Sunday, I'm going to talk a whole lot more about this. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. You can look at that. You can be in prayer for that. But there shouldn't be a mixing of gender norms because... A, a, a young man is created in the image of God and there are unique and beautiful ways in which he will reflect the image of God. But what is often associated with a male is toxic masculinity. Do you know why it's so difficult for so many young men to want to just stand up and just be a, 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 a you know, uh, identify with who they are in their gender is because they're going to be attacked for it. And you need to bolster your sons and your grandsons and your nephews in who they are as a male. That it's wonderful and it's beautiful and they are created in a unique way to reflect the image of God as a provider, as a protector, as somebody that, that you know, does the right thing, that shows love, that is a father. These are beautiful things that reflect the image of God. And so... Does a young lady reflect the image of the Lord? She's created in the image of God as well. She reflects the, the comforter, the Holy Spirit. I mean, listen, are these stereotypes? Yeah, they're stereotypes for a reason. I mean, listen, nine times at 9.9 .9 times out of 10, when my kids got hurt, they did not come running to me if mom was in the room. They came running to mom. They wanted the comfort that a mom could give. And there's a tenderness that is reflected in a woman that is a picture of the image, the nature of God. 
And so each of these beautifully reflect the image of God. And when they come together in marriage, a male and a female, they now combine together to together reflect the image and the glory of God. That's why it's under attack. Because it's, it's God's. Whatever is God's is going to be under attack. So we have this, this verse that you could read and think, eh, whatever, 20 years ago, hmm, whatever, that's strange fringe stuff. Not anymore. This verse seems really relevant all of a sudden. Uh, verse 6 and 7, if you see a, a nest and there's a, eggs in it, you can have the eggs, but leave the mom alone. You allow the next generation to come. Uh, verse 8, for all you construction guys, building codes, you got to have a retaining wall on top of the roof where it was an entertainment place because you didn't want people falling off the roof to the ground. So building codes there, verse 8. Verses 9 through 11. Interesting, and we're just going to end right there. Um, actually, no, not quite yet. Verses 9 through 11. There's some reminders here of not mixing with the nations. They have some, pra- but the reminders come in a practical way. Verse 9, look at it. Chapter 22, verse 9. Don't sow different types of seeds in the field. Why not? Because you're separate. Verse 10, don't plow with mixed animals. Why not? Well, number one, it's not going to be very efficient. But number two, because you're separate. Don't mix. Verse 11, don't wear clothes with mixed fabrics. What? Yeah, why? Because you're to be separate. I like it. This is a great, that's a great verse, by the way. Verse 11, when people say, well, I just believe in keeping the law. Ask to see the label on their clothes. I guarantee you they're not. And if you don't keep the whole law, you broke all of it. Um, verse 12. Um, he moves in a different direction, but it's the same kind of principle. You shall make tassels on the four corners of your clothing. Here's another reminder. Put something on your clothes that's going to you know, catch your eye and everybody else's eye. You obey the commandments. That's why those tassels were there. So this is interesting reminders in the nation um, you could try and maybe find some physical reasons for this as well, but the point is be separate. And so uh, you, you were reminded of this when you put your clothes on. You were reminded of this when you were hooking up the animals. You're reminded of this when you went to get the seed. You're reminded, I don't mix with the nations around because I am to be holy unto the Lord. Um, all kinds of, again, I mentioned this beginning, from verse 13 um, down to the end of the chapter, there's all kinds of laws that are given for sexual violation. They were, I covered these in Leviticus. I encourage you to go do that, but I'll just break it down for you. Verses 13 through 19, um, prohibition against false accusation of infidelity. So if you did that, there was, there was laws for that. Um, you had to pay 100 shekels to the dad of, the, of the, you know, your new bride that you accused of being uh, unfaithful, and you were never allowed to divorce her. Now, you look at it like, well, who would want to stay with them? It was a different day. So obviously, there, I think you, you can assume that there had to be a willingness for her to stay after this false accusation. Um, but you know, if you went back home, you would never be married again. That's, that wasn't going to happen. So um, this was a resolution, also a strong warning to some punk that would want to bring false accusation like that. Uh, verses 20 and 21. Uh, well, actually, it talks about different instances of rape. If it, you know, she was betrothed, if she was not betrothed, if it was in a city, outside of the city. Um, and you can just go through, through these and you can read these on your own. The last one, verse 30, was a, a, um, a son could not marry his stepmother at the passing of his father. So the Lord cares for sexual purity and he gave some instruction. So as we, we wrap this up, and worship team, you can just stay where you are. Um, we're just going to close with prayer. Some, some things that stand out to me is we need to hear the Lord, this prophet that has come. and We need to obey him. Don't move the ancient landmarks of God's word. Don't begin to tamper with that which has always been there and has always been the interpretation of the church. Don't tamper with it. You know the Bible says? You're not allowed to your private interpretation. And that's what's going on. People are saying, well, I just believe. Oh, you mean your private interpretation, that which you're not allowed to have? 
Okay? We need to remain separate from this world. Very practical ways in which the Lord reminded them. We need to be separate. Not, you know, uh, mixed in with a godless system. We need to walk in love to those around us. We need to care. We need to look out for the interests of each other. These are some good reminders for all of us. And so let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It gives us instruction and guidance. Lord, we, we understand this. And we, as we read this, just thinking about a, a group of people wondering how to live together and have their own land. Lord, again, so kind, so generous you were to them to tell them even about the borders. To tell them about matters of law, matters of war. About matters of the home and social life. False witnesses. Lord, you were caring for them. And, um, and yet we can see your, your love and your care, but we also see other principles that are for us that still remain to this day. And I pray that we would have an ear to hear what you have to say, even as your father spoke when you were upon this earth. Hear him. Lord, we do hear you, and we want to walk in obedience to you. Lord, we want to know the blessing of walking uprightly, giving you every opportunity to shower us with blessings because we are in that place of uh, abiding with you. Lord, give us the grace to stand in the midst of the roar of our culture and the enemy that is leading so many away. Give us boldness to speak the truth in love. In your name we pray. Amen.